0: Welcome, everyone, to the Bold Speak Podcast. I'm Anthony Creedon. Glad you could be with us as we continue this study of no other gospel, a study of the book of Galatians. And today, as we get into chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. Now, again, uh, if you don't know, you can purchase the study guide that's available that goes with this. In fact, it goes the entire book of Galatians uh, on our website. That's www.theboldspeak.com. You can purchase that and follow along with us as we're tracking through each chapter and each verse to see what Paul has to say about the nature and the identity of the gospel, what it means, how it's lived out in our lives. Now, last week, you'll remember, we uh, talked a little bit about who Paul is, and and we talked about Paul's understanding of the gospel, and how there is no other gospel than the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, he, he begins to clarify that in verse 10 as he talks about the fact that he's not here to please people, but rather he's here to simply speak the truth. In this next section of verses 11 through 24, What Paul's going to do is illustrate how his history and his background supports his idea of the truth of the gospel. And so, in an effort to gain a better understanding, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to backtrack a bit. We're going to read from Acts chapter 9, verses 1-31, to and we're going to take a look at Paul's conversion experience and see what it can tell us about Paul's validity as a disciple. So again, this is Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 31 in the English Standard Version of the Bible. But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And in falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the Lord said to him, "'Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying.' And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, "'Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, has sent me, so that you may regain your sight, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed, and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and now at Damascus, He had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now the first question I want to address uh, in our study guide is question five. Immediately upon hearing the word of God, what did Saul slash Paul do? As soon as he heard the voice of the Lord and soon as he recognized the nature of his mission and calling through Jesus Christ, he immediately began to proclaim Jesus Christ as the Son of God in the synagogues of Damascus. In fact, it says that he grew in strength and amazed the Jews with his arguments proving Jesus to be the Christ. That is to say that at the moment of his conversion, Paul felt a conviction. A conviction to not keep this information to himself and just be content that he knew the truth, but rather to give that truth to others. Even though Paul wasn't received very well. And that's the next question. Question six is, how did Paul receive, or how did the people receive Saul slash Paul after his conversion? And the answer is not well. In fact, many of the Christians there believed that what he was preaching was a trick. So they thought that that he was going to come out and say, Jesus Christ is Lord and let me see who's with me so that the people would kind of give a show of hands and Talk openly about their faith in Jesus Christ and immediately at that point he could look at them and say Well bind that person and that person and that person and that person It's actually a pretty clever scheme if you think about it And the people were so afraid that as a result many of them weren't willing to listen to Paul Because they were afraid that he was trying to trap them When in truth Paul had actually suffered an incredible conversion experience, believed in Jesus Christ as Lord, and was only interested in giving that grace, love, and mercy that Christ had shown him to others. Now that leads us to question 7. How did the disciples in Jerusalem react to Saul/Slash Paul's arrival and attempt to join them in the mission of the church? When you read through the account in the book of Acts, you see that they were actually quite frightened because they knew his reputation. They knew that Paul was responsible for the arrest and the persecution of many Christians so far. In fact, it wasn't until Barnabas supported Paul's story and corroborated the fact that he had been preaching in Damascus, that the disciples in Jerusalem accepted him into the fold and allowed him to preach with them. What Paul is doing in this account is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ on the basis of a conversion and a message he received directly from Jesus. What we're seeing here is that Paul began to preach even before he was in Jerusalem, even before he spoke to the Apostles, even before he had gotten confirmation and acceptance from them. Now what that sets up for us is that Paul was preaching a message from Jesus and not just preaching some sort of party line from the Apostles. His credibility rests on a direct encounter with Christ, and not on what someone else has told him or communicated to him. Now, this is absolutely essential as we get into the book of Galatians and read through his continued case for the gospel in verses 11 through 24. So let's take a look at that. This is Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 24. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other Apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This gets us to question 8. Why is it important for Paul to establish that he didn't make contact with the disciples until three years after his conversion? The reason why Paul is trying to communicate this is because he's establishing that his credentials for being an apostle are not from the words he heard from men, but from the very words of Christ. Now see, this is in contrast to the Judaizers, who were possibly challenging Paul's credibility as an apostle, and who were themselves still trying to hold on to the traditions and misguided structures of the Jews. Simply put, Paul is saying that he's a valid apostle, commissioned by Jesus himself, and the Judaizers are false apostles, commissioned by no one but themselves. There's a huge difference. Paul's conversion experience led to him proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ because of a direct encounter with Christ. The Judaizers are operating by proclaiming a gospel that has been tried to be figured out and and managed by Jewish tradition. And what he's stating is there's two very different things going on here. One is directly from the Lord. The other is from the wisdom of men. Wisdom that is sometimes confusing and, and tainted and kind of misguided because of our own inability to understand the depth and the riches of God. So the impetus behind both of their messages is very very different. Question 9. After reading Galatians 1, what would you say was the plan of the Judaizers regarding Paul? Now on the basis of what Paul is trying to communicate here in chapter 1, it seems pretty clear that this was the idea. If we can't stop the message, will discredit the messenger. The thinking was that the only way that they could change the hearts and minds of the Galatian Christians was to convince them that Paul wasn't really a valid apostle. If you can discredit the man, you can discredit the message. It's what's called an ad hominem attack. They're trying to challenge Paul's character so that if they can convince people that his character is weak, or that he's in some way misguided, then his message would be void. But what Paul's trying to point out to them is the only one whose message is incorrect, the only one who is presenting a different gospel, a gospel contrary to what God desires, are the ones who are taking their calling from themselves and not directly from God. And his history, his background proves that. Let's move on to question 10. How do we see this tactic used in the world today regarding the Christian message? Now there's obviously a lot of different ways that you can take this, and maybe a lot of different ways that you too have seen people try to discredit the message of Christ and his gospel by discrediting the speaker. One very common complaint that I hear, and one of the very common things that people have used against the Christian church, is that Christians today are hypocrites. Now the thinking behind it works the exact same way as the Judaizers' plot against Paul. If they can prove that Christians have faults and flaws, then they can discredit the message and thus give an excuse as to not believe it. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, this accusation can sometimes sting. If we're supposed to be a people of love, then why do we do a bad job of loving people sometimes? If we're supposed to be people of purity, why do we see Christian leaders in the news and in other places doing bad things? See, what the unbeliever lacks is a proper understanding of sin and how it works and what it means to be a Christian. The truth that we confess in Jesus Christ is not one of perfection. Christ isn't a a means by which that we find a way to achieve always holy and perfect behavior. The Christian religion isn't about just living right according to a series or a set of rules. Christianity is about redemption. It's about forgiveness in the face of sin. Now what that means is a healthy recognition of what sin is and how it works. And that's going to get us to our next question here, question 11. How would you answer someone who calls your faith and beliefs into question because they're calling you a hypocrite? Ultimately, here's what we want you to come to an understanding of and something we want others to understand as well. All Christians are sinners but not all Christians are hypocrites. See, the word hypocrite refers to someone who acts in a way that is inconsistent with their beliefs. And while it is true that Christians are against sin, we never ever admit that we're perfect. In fact, the Christian faith is filled with statements of confession that express our truly sinful nature, if you want to look more into that, you can research Romans 3:23, uh, 1 John 1, 8-10, and several other verses that all explain the reality of sin in our lives. See, what's important for us to remember is that our struggle with sin doesn't diminish the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, our honesty about our sinful nature can, in many ways, make the gospel more able to be related to those who desire to know about Jesus. If you'd like to understand how sin affects us, read through scripture, the narrative, the Old Testament, and several accounts that show that God's people, the people that served God, the people that are a part of the plan of salvation, were imperfect people. Abraham struggled to believe in the promise that God made to him. Several other accounts of the the leaders of the church, Judah, uh, David, uh, numerous, numerous people all struggled with sin, not the least of which, Paul. God turned the the most incredibly ferocious, uh, passionate person for the persecution of the church into its greatest evangelist. See, God's not looking for perfect people. He's actually looking for sinners to serve Him, and Christianity is not about being perfect. It's about believing and trusting in the promise that God made to redeem and reclaim sinners for His good and gracious purposes. So no, not all Christians are hypocrites, because we have a solid confession in the reality of sin in our lives, And the importance of the love, grace, and mercy that God shows to us every single day. You may be sitting there thinking to yourself, I'm not exactly sure how I could ever serve God. I'm not exactly sure how I could ever serve Christ, considering the things that I've done. But I want you to hear me when I say this, and I want you to hear me very clearly. You are not your mistakes. Your identity is not wrapped up in the the bad things that you have done. Your identity is something that is given to you, that is placed upon you by Christ. And there is not a single mistake in the world that can get in the way of that. Christ is bigger than your sin. And when we stop and we admit that and we say to others who might call us hypocrites or try to discredit the message of Christ because we don't exactly have the best past or we have been known to make Great mistakes. When you're challenged on that, you can respond by saying, You're right. I know. Sin is a part of my life. But the bigger part of my life life is the redemption that Christ gives to me and bestows upon me freely by his mercy. That is the gospel. That it would is what Paul's trying to communicate. See, Paul is a living example of how the gospel works. His sin could not keep him from the message of Jesus Christ that was given to him. And I pray that it never keeps us from doing the same. I hope it never prevents us from living out the gospel and receiving the gospel regularly in our lives. Again, very glad you could be with us in this next section of uh, Galatians chapter 1 verses 11 to 24. I also want to remind you again, if you want to purchase the, the study guide that we have available, make sure you hit www.boldspeak, uh, theboldspeak.com and connect with us there. You can purchase those things in the store. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram uh, by going to each of those URLs, Facebook.com, uh, Twitter.com, uh, Instagram.com, and then forward slash TheBoldSpeak. Make sure to follow us and stay connected to us. Um, and We really love to, to have you be a part of what we're doing here. Uh, If you want to leave some comments or some questions, uh, you can certainly do so. We're going to be adding some features here. As people ask questions, I'll answer them. So if you have something as we're going through the book of Galatians that you're thinking, I'm not quite sure what you're getting at there, or that doesn't make any sense, or I'd like some clarification on this particular thing, make sure you comment, uh, respond to us, ask those questions. And on a future episode of the podcast, I'll get to those and answer some of those. Again, really appreciate you being here. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you can get the latest updates from us. And until next time, that is... Is the bold speak? Well, now it's time to introduce you all to a new feature on the Bold Speak podcast, and it's something I'm calling the wire. Now, let me give you a little bit of background information behind this. As a kid, my father worked for a radio station in Cincinnati, and I remember going in to work with him on occasion. And and when I say on occasion, I mean rarely, because it involved getting up at 2:30 a.m. That's right, 2:30. A.M. That early in the morning, we would get up and go to the station so my dad could pull uh, the latest news off of The Wire. That is, a, a dot matrix printer where he would get the latest information. And so he would take that and write up for the broadcast a, a bit of information, the news, and then deliver that at 5.30 in the morning for the early birds. Now, I have to admit to you, I loved that. Uh, the latest information being broadcast for the world so they could stay informed. And then my father began to kind of add to it. He would add commentary and give his own insights, and he offered up what he called one man's opinion. And this was a commentary on the latest news and and, and things going on to help listeners gain some hopefully helpful perspective on things. I admired that. The bravery to approach difficult topics and hit them head on in an effort to challenge the world to be better and inspired me as a child and so this is the place where I I guess well, I'll attempt to do the same. So, this is the latest from the wire. the wire. Well, someone had to win it. It was announced on October 24th that there was in fact a single ticket sold in South Carolina with the winning numbers of the 1.5 billion billion dollar jackpot in the Mega Millions lottery. According to the CNN article on the monumental win, the jackpot nearly strikes a U.S. record for lottery winnings. But that's not even the most striking part of the story. The article continues to inform us that the winner has 180 days to claim the prize and, according to South Carolina law, can choose to keep their name from the public. In fact, one lottery board member explained, Our board has a policy to protect the winner because of all the risks associated with with having that much money. And there it is. The dangers of winning the lottery. I mean, for most of us, I would imagine thoughts on the lottery revolve around what you would do with the money and, and how would you spend or maybe donate it. Dreams of a new house or a new car or maybe several new houses or new cars, but rarely do we think about the dangers. Winning the lottery is dangerous? Yeah. Because, not surprisingly, people are greedy. And, ladies and gentlemen, sin is still a thing. This is why Jesus says you can't love God and money, and Paul reinforces that when he says in 1 Timothy 6 that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But why? I mean, it's, it's just money. The thing we have to consider is that there, there's a powerful force behind a sense of self-sufficiency. According to worldly standards, that kind of money would make you capable of just about anything, which would engender a sense of kind of human empowerment that that wants for nothing. And see, that is the root of sin. In the garden, Adam and Eve weren't tempted by the fruit because there wasn't anything else to eat. They were tempted because they were told it would make them like God, equals, and therefore self-sufficient. Not depending on anyone or anything. Now, see if our if our minds kind of grab onto that idea, we can think that that maybe sounds a lot like freedom, but it's actually not. It's slavery. It's slavery to something or someone that doesn't ultimately have any power or control, and ultimately will fade away, like money. So, rather than uh, kind of celebrating this and imagining and thinking all oh, this person's life is going to be wonderful, I would challenge us to do this. We need to pray for that winner. Pray for the winner of the Mega Million jackpot that th- that those who would seek to gain their self-sufficiently at the cost or expense of harming the winner would be stopped. That the illusion of self-sufficiency would be quickly eradicated. And that the money would be used in a God-pleasing way to show others just how much they are loved. Especially loved by a God that already has everything, but still wants you. That's The Wire. Thanks for joining us for the second episode of the Bold Speak podcast. Very glad you could be with us. Uh, again, make sure to stay connected to us on all our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at forward slash the speak, or on our website, www.theboldspeak.com. Also, make sure to grab our study guide so you can continue to go through the book of Galatians with us. Uh, make sure you uh, subscribe to this podcast to get the latest from us, as next week we continue with Galatians chapter 2. Until then, take it easy, everyone. Keep living the bold speak.